Believe those who say they want to kill you because they usually follow through. When a hate monger says, I will destroy you, history has demonstrated that they mean what they say. Pharaoh meant it, Haman meant it, Hitler meant it, Ahmadinejad meant it. I believe within the next year, Iran will have an announcement or will try to make an announcement that they have perfected the nuclear fuel cycle. If Ahmadinejad starts a nuclear war in the Middle East, that will be the beginning of the end times. We have stunning news from the embattled Texas-Mexico border. Heavily armed drug cartels are now adopting a deadly tactic mastered by Middle Eastern terrorists. The Iranians are positioning themselves so they will be able at some point in time to penetrate the southern borders of the United States with terrorists. War has always been more rule than exception in the Middle East. This is the worst attack there has ever been against the United States in the Middle East. Even during times of relative peace, rumors of war permeate the consciousness of men, women, and children who live in this part of the world. A flashpoint waits around every corner. Watchful eyes are always trained to the sky, on the nervous shopper, the solitary figure lurking on the fringes. It's been the way of life here for a very long time. But something has changed. At home in America, we've watched. Iran carried out the attack. We've fretted. The hostages are human beings and their family by just because they belong to the United States. Mm -hmm. We've prayed. Yellow ribbons with the message, free the hostages. We're enraged when their wars touch on our own. But mostly, we quietly express thanks for the half globe that sits between the never-ending conflict, the endless string of madmen and our shores. Without a doubt, the events of 9-11 and subsequent failed attempts at terrorism in our country have brought us closer to empathy. But for most of us, detachment is still a much more comfortable place to be. But something has changed. The war is different now than it's ever been. The unthinkable horror, now a seeming reality. A madman, a zealot of the worst order, armed with the nuclear bomb, and an army of disciples no longer a world away. Well, there's no question that Iran today, without nuclear weapons, is the number one exporter of terrorism in the world. When the United States defeated the Taliban initially, uh, back in 2001 after 9-11, the Taliban uh, had hosted the presence of Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda split into two directions. Part of Al-Qaeda went to Pakistan. That is probably where Osama bin Laden went. But a good portion of Al-Qaeda went into Iran and from Iran ordered terrorist operations against other countries. So that uh, beside the well-known Iranian connections with Hamas, with Hezbollah, with Islamic Jihad, the Iranians also are connected to Al-Qaeda. And uh, that whole capability, which has already been striking at the world over the last 20 years, will be magnified once it is under a nuclear umbrella.
the fact is Iran has mastered the entire nuclear fuel cycle. They have all the scientific and technological knowledge they need to uh, fashion a nuclear weapon. It's really only a question of time. Uh, and I think we're past the point, unfortunately, where economic sanctions are going to slow them down. Not since Nazi Germany has there been a leader, a government, whose motives are so impervious to reason. Motivated by the absolute conviction that they are right and everyone else is wrong. A belief in a divine purpose that supersedes humanity itself. Mass destruction in the name of God. Almighty Lord, I pray to you to hasten the emergence of your last repository, the promised one, that perfect and pure human being, the one that will fulfill this world with justice and peace. Ahmadinejad, the president of Iran, is a 12er Shia, which is to say that he is awaiting the arrival of the 12th Imam. The Shia believe that this is an individual that has been alive in a, in a state which they call occultation, and he will reemerge uh, out of this, this sort of spiritual cryogenic state, and he'll, he'll come onto the world scene. This is what's driving their nuclear development program, and they believe they are appointed, uh, Ahmadinejad and the people of Iran, and especially the mullahs, to usher in and bring back the Messiah through an apocalyptic disaster throughout the world. It's like the second coming. It's like uh, the second coming of the Prophet Muhammad, but this is uh, one of his uh, disciples. Um, and that will be the end times when the world will be redeemed. Redeemed through a worldwide apocalypse, collective salvation or cleansing by force, a concept associated with the likes of Hitler, Stalin and Mao. It's a belief also embraced by a secretive Islamic movement known as the Hajjatiya Society. Both the Supreme Leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei and Mahmoud Ahmadinejad are believed to be members along with key leadership of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard. And in 1983, the Ayatollah Khomeini decided to ban this society as being too much, too, too crazy. They were nuts in his view. What is different in modern Iran today is the rise of Mahdist or Messianic groups, like the Hojatiya organization, which believes that man can accelerate the arrival of this Messianic era the arrival of the Mahdi. It's not some preordained date in the future, because many religions have an end of times concept. It's something that man can move forward himself. But the way to move that forward is to spread global chaos. There are 74 million people living in Iran today. And by all accounts, most of them are a lot like you and me. They cherish their families, their friends. They respect the rights of others, but they live under the oppression of a powerful and frightening few. The Twelvers are in complete control right now. Uh, not every even political leader in the cabinet, or, or well, at least in the government, in the parliament, believes what Ahmadinejad believes. But the guy who believes it most is the supreme leader of Iran, the Ayatollah Khamenei. Khamenei rose to power in 1989 following the death of Ayatollah Khomeini. Ahmadinejad was his hand-picked choice to become Iran's sixth president in 2005. What's intriguing to me about Mahmoud Ahmadinejad is that he's not 
someone who really defined himself in the 1979 Islamic Revolution. In the 1980s, during the Iran-Iraq War, wasn't a general, wasn't a major intelligence official, uh, not a major political figure of any kind. But during the Iran-Iraq War, he served with the Revolutionary Guard and became acquainted with many of its top officers. In 2003, he is appointed the mayor of Tehran by the city council. Ahmadinejad, who holds a doctorate in traffic management, makes better traffic conditions and clean streets his top priority. And oh yeah, he also promises to help facilitate the return of the 12th Imam. You know, he, he, he actually used to dress up in a uh, orange jumpsuit and he called him uh, to go out and sweep trash and he called himself the little street sweeper. In April 2005, the little street sweeper, still very much a political unknown, announced an unlikely run for the presidency of Iran. Almost no one showed up at his news conference. Public polls gave him only 3% support among voters. Two months later, he was elected president. Ahmadinejad's re-election in 2009 was no less miraculous. In spite of a strong field of well-known candidates, he captured 63% of the vote, more than double his nearest competitor. Despite an 85% voter turnout and 40 million paper ballots cast, the Iranian government announced the results of the election just two hours after the polls closed, and the Ayatollah Khamenei declared him the winner even earlier. In both elections, the Revolutionary Guards served as campaign activists for Ahmadinejad. He returned the favor by appointing veterans of the Guard to half of his cabinet positions. In Ahmadinejad's mind, he went from obscurity and no political support to the presidency of Iran for one reason. He believes he was chosen by Allah to become the leader of Iran in order to usher in the coming of the 12th Imam. He believes he is John the Baptist of the Islamic faith. In spite of his own belief in his preordained date with destiny, however, all indications are that Ahmadinejad is merely a bit player, a willing, loudmouth puppet whose actions are tightly scripted. Let me stress Ahmadinejad is not the central figure in Iran. The main power centers in Iran are twofold. One is Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, the supreme leader of Iran, and the second, of course, are the Revolutionary Guards and their elite commanders. It used to be in Iran that the power center was with the mullahs, with the religious clerics. But if you look at the Iranian parliament in the early 1980s, a good portion of it came from the clerical class. Today, the dominant power in the Iranian par parliament are ex-revolutionary guards. So there's been an extreme power shift. But actually, because the revolutionary guards have adopted Shiite fanaticism, it's far more dangerous than it was back in the early 1980s. If you go back and look historically at uh, who, who our best friends in that part of the world have been, it's been the Iranians. In 1979, that all changed. The U.S. Embassy in Tehran has been invaded and occupied by Iranian students. Americans held hostage for 444 days by radicals in a country most of us knew almost nothing about. 
The event captured our attention. It was the impetus for one of the longest running shows on television. This is Nightline. It was also a low point in American history. A lack of decision, a lack of leadership, and failure. Two of our American aircraft collided on the ground following a refueling operation in a remote desert location in Iran. And I was there uh, on the night of the 24th of April, 1980, as we attempted to rescue the 53 Americans that were being held in the American embassy in Tehran. And of course, you know, that mission failed about 100 miles from Tehran in a uh, remote desert area when we had a collision between an RH-53 helicopter and a C-130. Um, and uh, that was uh, the one and only time that I've been there, but uh, I remember it well. As bad as it seemed back then, it's taken the world three decades to realize the true measure of evil unleashed by the revolution. The Ayatollah returned from exile in France to start what we now know as the Islamic Revolution and established an Islamic Republic and implemented Sharia law and then began to spread his theology as broadly as he could. And that is uh, really when they began to, they being the Iranian regime, began to support terrorism, uh, particularly Hamas and Hezbollah. Iran's transformation from disruptive nuisance to global threat accelerated with Khomeini's death in 1989 and the elevation of his chosen successor, Radical Twelver Ali Khamenei. Although there were many steps along the way, the full evil intent of the new regime bubbled to the surface in 2005 in the person of new president, Ahmadinejad. One of the most significant, probably the most significant moment was when he made his first address to the United Nations General Assembly in September of 2005, just a few months after he took office. And in this speech, he refers a few times to the promised one, a veiled reference to the 12th Imam, and then concluded the speech by praying that Allah would hasten the coming of this promised one, the 12th Imam. The ultimate promise of all divine religions will be fulfilled with the emergence of a perfect human being. I thought, I hope people are listening. And I hope people will take the time to try and understand what he just said. Few listened, even fewer understood. You know, over the last few years, I've been invited to, you know, to meet with people at the CIA, Homeland Security, Pentagon, White House, Congress. Yet, it's amazing to me that our number one national security threat as Americans is from Iran, and yet so few leaders in Washington, aside from around the world, understand the end time theology of the leaders of Iran. It's as though it's not even being investigated, it's not even being processed. One of the biggest problems for intelligence analysis is dealing with the issue of religion. First of all, everybody tends to mirror when they look at other cultures and other civilizations. They assume that people are logical, just like they are. Or they'll say, you know what, we'll be able to deter a nuclear Iran the same way the United States deterred the Soviet Union. But the Iranian leadership, which believes in the arrival of the Mahdi, are not godless communists. 
they have a whole different worldview. And uh, therefore, those who look at Iran without understanding the foundations of the Shiite faith and Iranian religion are going to make a very big mistake in dealing with this very problematic challenge for all of us. They're telling us exactly what they want to do. They don't have a hidden agenda. They're not lying. They feel so bold as to state it to the world what they want to do. We are refusing to listen. This end time theology is not only what he believes, but it's what's, is why he's putting his, uh, Ahmadinejad is putting his foot to the gas of accelerating Iran's nuclear weapons development program and the ballistic missile development as well. Uh, because once Ahmadinejad is able to acquire nuclear weapons and the missiles to deliver them, Ahmadinejad could do in about six minutes what it took Adolf Hitler nearly six years to do, and that is to kill six million Jews. If you really want a barometer of human decency, see how a country treats its own. State television showed the police beating some protesters. Because if they have contempt for their own, they certainly will do far worse with others. And uh, I think we've seen uh, manifestations of that over and over again. Hitler wrote a book, Mein Kampf, saying exactly what he wanted to do. And people said, oh, he's a crazy lunatic. He doesn't really mean it. And we would say, why do you say he doesn't mean it? He wrote it, he preached it, and later on he practiced it. Why would we in any way question the authenticity of the sentiment? Ahmadinejad is doing the same thing. Evil, unchecked, is a prelude for genocide. And to misunderstand the nature and threat of evil is to risk being blindsided by it. Iran has yet to build a nuclear weapon. My administration will seek engagement with Iran based on mutual interests and mutual respect. We believe in dialogue. Today I want to extend my very best wishes to all who are celebrating Nowruz around the world. This holiday is both an ancient ritual and a moment of renewal. And I hope that you enjoy this special time of year with friends and family. So in this season of new beginnings, I would like to speak clearly to Iran's leaders. We have serious differences that have grown over time. My administration is now committed to diplomacy that addresses the full range of issues before us and to pursuing constructive ties among the United States, Iran, and the international community. This process will not be advanced by threats. We seek instead engagement that is honest and grounded in mutual respect. Thank you. And Ed A. Shoma Mubarak. Publicly, the Obama administration has gone out of its way, bent over backwards to try and entice Iran to be reasonable, to sit down and, through negotiation, work out our differences. And I think all reasonable people would like to think that reasonable people do sit down and discuss differences. But again, I stress reasonable people. But when you have someone who threatens to destroy Israel, denies the Holocaust, threatens the West, 
you're not talking about a reasonable person. So it's not enough to talk about it, we have to do something about it. Behind the scenes, U.S. envoys have hurriedly hammered out deals and offered concessions to foreign governments in an attempt to create an economic noose in the form of sanctions that would force Iran to see the error of its ways. In at least one instance, the cost of cooperation was exceedingly high. President Obama agreeing to scrap plans for ballistic missile defense sites in Poland and the Czech Republic to buy Russia's cooperation. According to former United States Ambassador to the UN, John Bolton, the president's policy played right into Iran's hands. The Obama administration's announced policy of uh, negotiating with Iran simply gives Iran even more time to perfect their nuclear weapon and to continue work on their ballistic missile program so that ultimately they can marry the warheads with the missiles and have a worldwide uh, delivery capability. A missile program that based on recently published intelligence is much further along than originally thought. According to secret diplomatic cables recently released by WikiLeaks, North Korea has supplied Iran with missiles capable of reaching cities in Western Europe and even Moscow. Ironically, it was the specter of this very threat that led Obama's predecessor, President Bush, to push for the Eastern European missile defense sites, now bargained away. There are those that believe that you can negotiate with a theocratic dictatorship similar to the way you would negotiate uh, during the era of the Cold War, the political realists. Unfortunately, when you're dealing with a theocratic dictatorship, it is a different bargain, a different calculus. Well, I think, first of all, every new president comes into office thinking he's going to do things differently from his predecessor. But the fact of the matter is engagement was tried and it failed. And therefore, it shouldn't be a surprise that that's what happened in the first year and a half of President Obama's period in office. The history of failure is clear. Iran's secret nuclear infrastructure was disclosed in 2002. A few months later, Iran sent a back-channel message to President Bush, offering to negotiate next steps. The offer was declined. Instead, the Iranians found willing negotiation partners in France, Germany, and the United Kingdom. As a stipulation to the talks, Iran promised to suspend all work on its uranium enrichment program and cooperate fully with an investigation by the International Atomic Energy Agency. That promise was quickly broken. And at the end of the day, the Iranians simply moved further down the road in nuclear enrichment and getting closer to a nuclear bomb. The Iranians brilliantly dragged the Europeans along for negotiations for two years, and in doing so, delayed any UN Security Council action against them. In late 2005, Hassan Rouhani, Iran's outgoing chief nuclear negotiator, made a staggering and brash disclosure. He said, while we were negotiating with the Europeans, we proceeded with our uranium conversion project. Conversion is the second stage in uranium enrichment. And then he proudly stated that when we started the negotiations, we had no uranium conversion project in Isfahan. When we finished, it was up and running. Clearly, the whole thing was a scam. Rouhani went on to say that as a result of his diplomacy with the Europeans, quote, the world would face a fetah compli, which would change the entire equation, unquote. He boasted that, from the outset, the Americans kept telling the Europeans, the Iranians are lying and deceiving you, and they have not told you everything. The Europeans used to respond, we trust them. 
President Obama, Britain and France say that they have built a solid case that Iran is hiding a secret nuclear plant in violation of international treaties. They're demanding immediate UN inspections and threatening sanctions if Iran does not comply. That revelation coming just days after Iran had once again agreed to sit down and negotiate. This time with a group of six nations, including the United States. And there's reason to believe that the Iranians probably have other facilities that are part of their overall nuclear weapons program that have not yet been disclosed, disclosed and certainly haven't been reported to the International Atomic Energy Agency, the UN watchdog that's supposed to be on top of this issue. I think that our country is living in, in very dangerous times because its leadership uh, has its head in the sand as far as the uh, Islamic jihadist threat to this country. Well, I think political correctness, moral relativity, cultural relativity has absolutely hamstrung the ability of the Western world to think critically. We can't analyze, we can't objectively assess anything. And, and yes, critical thinking is, is essentially kicked to the curb uh, in light of cultural and moral relativity. Under this administration, the United States is perceived as weak, as coward, as a government that doesn't know what to stand on, that has lost its path and its values, and as a pushover. Because they look at President Obama bowing to the Saudi king, by the way, which is something no other Muslim president in the Middle East has ever done. Because you don't bow to your equal, you only bow to your superior. Meanwhile, Iran continues to develop its nuclear program unchecked. Although economic sanctions seem to be causing some difficulty, the march to full nuclear armament seems to be moving unimpeded. They are having an effect. Will they ultimately um, make the difference between Iran getting a nuclear weapon and not in and of themselves? I do not believe so. So what happens next? How long will the world wait? If he can't get the world to squeeze them through sanctions, to convince them diplomatically and economically to back off on the development of this uh, weapons program, then what else can Benjamin Netanyahu do? He cannot stand by and let them uh, have the first uh, strike. So I think we're coming to a point where Netanyahu is, if, if we are not successful, I think Netanyahu is, uh, is going to have to strike him. If the United States or other countries such as Israel were to take action, um, I think that obviously that action would have to occur before uh, Iran announces its breakout technology of perfecting the enrichment cycle um, or uh, announcing that it has a nuclear weapon. Certainly a military option is not a desirable option. Without a doubt, a nuclear-armed Iran is a much more undesirable outcome than military preparations. Would the U.S. consider a military strike against Iran? The military options have been on the table and remain on the table, and certainly in that regard, it's, it's one of the uh, options that the president has. Not everyone agrees. I don't believe there's one bit of support for that in the State Department. Um, I think in, in large part because um, most of the folks who are at the desk who are looking at this are not people who understand the role of faith in people's lives in that area of the world. Um, they, they, don't, uh, they don't believe it. And uh, they don't believe people will act irrationally, at least in their mind, irrationally. 
uh, that they'll act for theological purposes. I've said in meetings where we, we tried to be very honest about what the threat was, only to uh, be directed to water down our statements or, or uh, modify uh, the things that we were saying because we did not want to be accused of, uh, of, of declaring war on Islam. The mentality that holds um, uh, that these are individuals, that their terrorism is not connected to the religion, have already led to the deaths of 13 Americans at Fort Hood uh, because the killer at Fort Hood uh, was screaming, I'm a terrorist, uh, uh, gave lectures in a military medical school saying that uh, we should uh, cut off the heads of infidels and pour boiling oil down their, down their throats, and nobody did anything. Um, in fact, he was promoted uh, from captain to major. Um, how could this possibly happen if you were taking it all seriously, what he was saying? I think we are already uh, way behind the power curve on this. If there's another major attack in this country or if the Israelis strike and we start suffering the consequences of that, Americans are going to start asking a lot of questions and I must tell you, the administration has no answers. The Congress has no answers, except for those few that have been bold enough to stand up and, and not worry about political correctness and, and speak truth. Iran is, uh, under its current leadership, is, uh, is unpredictable. It's saying, you know, the leaders are saying they're going to attack certain countries, the United States and Israel, but they have designs on Saudi Arabia. They want to control what they believe are the holy sites of Mecca and Medina. They want control of Iraq. Uh, they want to control Lebanon. They want to control Syria. They have a vision ultimately of controlling the world. So where they strike first, nobody knows. That's why nobody's safe if Iran has nuclear weapons. You know, there are people looking at Iran, they go, you know, these guys just want to be left alone. They are building up all this military capability so the United States won't undermine their regime, won't try and topple the Ayatollah and his ministers in the Iranian government. But they are not a status quo regime. They are a revolutionary regime. But the general goal, is to be the dominant power across the Middle East and over the oil resources of the industrial world. Our government is a very big institution, and I hope that there are people in the counterterrorism sections uh, and in the military that take this seriously. However, there are tremendous political forces in our country, led by the president himself, uh, against that idea. And of course, it's not just Barack Obama. John Kerry ran on a program of uh, fighting uh, the Islamic Jihad against the West as though they are, these are individual criminals who have to be uh, you know, brought to um, civil courts and read their Miranda rights and, and uh, be given all the protections that we give to citizens who are not uh, in the grips of these fanatical religious ideas. I tell you, you know, I'm very concerned. I am very concerned. Ironically, these events are unfolding against a backdrop of the most strained relationship between the United States and Israel in decades. In an effort to curry favor with Arab countries, the Obama administration has pursued a leveling of the playing field as it pertains to Israel, no longer providing the near unconditional support of the past. Case in point, when Israeli soldiers were attacked while boarding the illegal Free Gaza Flotilla, 
the U.S. government was strangely silent. And even as Israel stares down the barrel of nuclear annihilation, the reassurances have been tepid at best. Because we have commitments in Iraq, we have commitments in Afghanistan, we have troop commitments in the, in the Korean Peninsula, our army is stretched to the point that it's very difficult to even carry on the missions that we're carrying on, and it's just not a problem on our radar screen that we have to deal with. It's their problem right now. It's Israel's problem. It's Saudi Arabia's problem. We understand the problem. We hope, that we wish you very good luck in dealing with it, but we just have too much on our plate right now. Uh, and we don't necessarily believe that this is, this is real. But Iran is rapidly bringing the problem much closer to our home. Chavez in Venezuela uh, has developed a defense pact with the Iranians. I know from reports that there are Hezbollah and Hamas training camps in, uh, in, in Venezuela, and there is a growing uh, uh, support for Islamism in that area of the world, not because it is Islam, you know, there are a number of Muslims moving in there, it's just that's a good training ground to export this type of threat against the United States. The Iranian connection to South America is one of the most dangerous developments occurring along America's southern flank. Recently they opened a new embassy in Nicaragua, and now there's, there are multiple reports of an Iranian presence in Mexico. In June of this year, North Carolina Congresswoman Sue Myrick asked the Department of Homeland Security to establish a task force to investigate reports that the terrorist group Hezbollah was working in conjunction with Central and South American drug cartels, including those that operate along the U.S.-Mexican border. Our intelligence sources have, have really clarified that they are in Mexico that there is an operation that is quite large based there. And it's very frightening to me because this is national security. That's what it's all about. To date, no task force has been created, although the Department of Homeland Security did offer to give Congresswoman Myrick a secret security briefing on the issue, which would, by the way, have effectively prohibited her from speaking out on the topic in the future. Also, a Kuwaiti newspaper reported that Mexican officials had uncovered a plot by Hezbollah to set up a terror network in that country designed to strike the United States. And in July, a car bombing on the U.S.-Mexico border at Juarez that had all the earmarks of a job done by Hezbollah. I think what's at stake on the whole question of America's southern border is not just the big issues of American domestic politics, which I don't want to get into, but rather, do you really want to be vulnerable penetration by Middle East terrorist groups who utilize connections with drug cartels to penetrate your borders and bring in terrorists to do another 9-11. That is why everyone has to be alerted to the Iranian problem. During the 2009 presidential elections, Iranians, young and old, took to the streets demanding freedom, democracy, a regime change. The U.S. government remained silent. I think we did miss a bit of an opportunity. I think the administration, the President Obama and his administration, was too slow to uh, express their support for those people that were seeking true, legitimate democracy in Iran. I think we had a chance. We were slow on the uptake. Most of the people ruled by authoritarian despots don't like their government, and that was no different than Iran. 
And so we knew that they didn't like their government, but we also were told, I was told, over and over by the intelligence agencies that was, there was no viable alternative. There was no one group or one person that could lead a legitimate overthrow of the, of the regime. Well, whether that was true or not then, certainly with the elections last, uh, last summer, we saw a movement come together. And we saw an opportunity for America to support pro-democracy uh, uh, freedom fighters in Iran, and we didn't. Not only didn't we, we actually sided with the, with the uh, current regime, and um, at the same time we were siding with them, continuing to negotiate with them, legitimizing their elections. Uh, that regime that we were trying to reach our hand to, according to Barack Obama, was using us to go after these pro-democracy folks, calling them puppets of the United States. While we're embracing the regime, they're, 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 they're torturing and killing the pro-democrats, the, uh, the Green Revolution, calling them uh, puppets of the U.S. During this time, President Obama issued the following statement. It's important to understand that although there is some ferment taking place in Iran, that the difference between Ahmadinejad and Musavi in terms of their actual policies may not be as great as advertised. On that score, he was right. But the statement fails to acknowledge that what was going on with the masses, the protest in violation of Iranian law, had little to do with any candidate. Americans watched as scores of Iranian protesters were brutalized and killed as Washington remained silent. Finally, 10 days after the elections, Obama condemned the Iranian government's heavy-handed treatment of its own people, but offered no new policy or approach to Iran as a result. I think that too many people felt that to take down this regime was impo an impossible task. What they don't understand is that in the Middle East, people put up their fingers to see which way is the wind blowing. And if the wind was blowing out of Washington against the regime and denying the utility of engagement, then it's possible that the uh, intensity of the protests could have increased. And it turns out we were a lot closer to getting rid of this regime than most, than most people think. Because we know now that members of the Revolutionary Guards were already switching their loyalties from the regime to the opposition. So there was a big missed opportunity. But we've had opportunities in the past to, uh, to support, uh, there was a bus strike in Iran several years ago, and this was during the Bush administration, and uh, many of us urged the administration to uh, find the next Lech Walesa, like the Gdansk shipworker strike, and, and find, as, as, as worked in, in Poland, find someone who could be a leader of people, give them the money they need, a strike fund, uh, so they could stand up to the government, get it to them anyway, you know, there's lots of, don't give it to them publicly, give it to them covertly, support them, try to get other labor unions to participate, and have that be the catalyst. We didn't do it. We wouldn't do it. The people of Iran uh, want to live in peace from all of the uh, uh, readings thus far. Uh, we have to facilitate that. We have to push that. We have to support them. The worst thing we can do uh, is have them feel that they've been abandoned. My parents, as I mentioned earlier, were Holocaust survivors. What sustained them during that horrific period was the thinking that the world would never leave them alone. The world would save them. And I'd like to think also here in Iran that if they know we're connected, if the world cares, then that's part of the solution as well.
It's been a one failed policy toward Iran after another, one missed opportunity after another toward Iran. And as a result, the Iranians believe that they're bulletproof. It's important to understand that at this stage, there are no magic or silver bullets when it comes to solving the problem that is Iran. What we know is a nuclear Iran is bad for the United States, Israel, and in reality, most of the world. Besides the obvious and immediate threat to its neighbors, a nuclear-armed Iran emboldens the terrorist organizations it supports, like Hezbollah and Hamas. It forever changes the world landscape. We actually have had an opportunity to see what happens when a major state that exports terrorism has a nuclear umbrella. Some Israelis have been in contact with their counterparts in India. And they asked, you know, in 2008 there was that terrorist attack in Mumbai uh, that was uh, apparently emanated from Pakistan, from an organization called Lashkar al-Taiba. And many Israelis were wondering, why didn't India do anything about that? I mean, here you had an organization exported terrorism into a major Indian city. The training camps were in Pakistan. The Indians believed there was Pakistani support. Why didn't they do anything? The Indian response was very clear, because Pakistan has a nuclear umbrella. And therefore, Pakistan could do things that it couldn't do earlier because it knew that the Indians wouldn't respond. What happens if an Iranian-supported organization attacks New York, Los Angeles, Paris, London? How can the West respond? Can the West respond against a nuclear Iran with the same flexibility that it could against Afghanistan, led by the Taliban? The answer is no. Your hands will be tied, and therefore, the room of, for maneuver of international terrorist organizations against the West will expand, and the ability of the West to defend itself under those circumstances will be highly circumscribed. To date, the economic sanctions approved by the UN, along with those imposed unilaterally by the United States and other countries, have failed to break Iran's will to proceed with its nuclear development. But there is one economic weapon that could potentially force Iran to its knees. Iran has a lot of uh, crude oil, they don't have a lot of refining capacity, and they have to import a lot of their gasoline. Uh, so putting a, an embargo on gasoline would have a devastating impact against, uh, against this regime. It's estimated that 40% of Iran's gasoline is imported. An embargo would be disastrous for them, and unlike most economic sanctions, which take years to have impact, the impact of a gasoline embargo would be almost immediate. In 2007, the Iranian government itself tried gas rationing, resulting in violent riots throughout the country. I think, practically speaking, if you were able to achieve a gasoline embargo on Iran, it would have certainly have an effect in July of this year, President Obama signed into law the Comprehensive Iran Sanctions, Accountability and Divestment Act, which among other things, bans any U.S. citizen or company from providing or assisting Iran with the importation of refined petroleum products, and states that any foreign country that does so can't do business in the U.S. To be truly effective, however, governments worldwide need to do the same. Practically speaking, I think it would be very difficult in the current climate, absent dramatic diplomatic breakthroughs, to effectively have an airtight gasoline embargo on Iran 
and convinced the Russians, the Chinese, even the Indians, even uh, Turkey to participate in such an embargo? First of all, the United States economy and the European Union economies are very strong. If their companies refuse to have anything to do with anyone who sells gasoline to Iran, it will shoot up the price of gasoline throughout uh, the Iranian uh, state. You'll have just supply and demand considerations affecting price and availability. But if you get universal adherence to a gasoline embargo, then I think the Iranian regime will have no choice but to come to the negotiating table with serious proposals. That's probably the best way to avoid conflict. But unfortunately, many in the world don't want to do it. Too many companies still find the allure of doing business with Iran too great a temptation to pass up. Recently, British-based Barclays was fined nearly $300 million for illegally doing business with Iran. Well, I'm going to quote Vladimir Lenin, who used to say that the uh, capitalists will sell you the rope to hang them with. Uh, it's a problem. There are companies that are looking at their profit and loss and putting that as a priority over the security of the United States, Europe, Israel, the entire Western Alliance. Time is running out. Most experts believe that Iran is within a year of having multiple nuclear weapons. Some believe they already possess them. Most agree, once that threshold is crossed, the world will never be the same. If Ahmadinejad starts a nuclear war in the Middle East, that will be the beginning of the end times. And he's very likely to do that if he gets the nuclear weapons. Because there's no downside for him. He becomes a martyr, he goes straight to heaven and gets 72 virgins. Again, this is so uh, outside a normal person's thinking that the tendency is to say, nobody can believe this. You already have in uh, Hezbollah uh, and Hamas uh, armies that are backed by Iran uh, that act on these act on these beliefs. People are not aware of the importance of the moment we're facing. Mm. I mean, this is the greatest supporter of international terror, of international Islamic terror worldwide. It is a country whose leadership believes in all kinds of apocalyptic scenarios of the end of days and talks about it all the time. Mm. And these guys are about to get nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. uh, it is extremely important that the West firmly prevent this from happening because the amount of chaos that will go on in the world will be hard to imagine. People tell me all the time, we don't know what to believe. What should we believe? We hear so many things. And I tell them, believe those who say they want to kill you because they usually follow through. If you're familiar with the Bible, specifically its scripture concerning the end times, the story of the return of the apocalyptic 12th Imam may sound hauntingly familiar. Revelations talks about a returning Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Battle of Armageddon, the fight between good and evil, the judgment of unbelievers, and ultimately, a new heaven and earth. When you look at Islamic eschatology, that's their belief regarding the last days, you have what I call an anti-parallel, which is to say that when you look at the narrative that the Bible lays out for the last days, it's identical to what Islam teaches, except Islam has literally taken the whole story and flipped it, it, it on its head. It's taken those uh, individuals in the biblical narrative that are the followers of God, and it's turned them into the followers of Satan. It's taken those that are 
uh, aggressive and those that are actually the, the armies of the Antichrist in the Bible, and it's turned them into the valiant heroes. It is literally an exact reverse that we've been given through the uh, Islamic narrative. And just as the Christian church is steadfast in their belief of the Bible prophecies, including the return of Christ, the Twelvers are just as devout in the belief of their version. Those who've attended their religious services compare them to a Christian revivalist meeting, with tears streaming down the faces of thousands of men with arms stretched to the heavens, all imploring the return of the Mahdi, or Twelfth Imam. All the three major religions, uh, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, believe in the return or in the coming of a Messiah that is going to bring peace, where peace is going to reign supreme on earth. We do not know the time, we do not know the day, we do not know the hour. In Islam, and especially in Shiite Islam, they believe that they can actively participate as Shiite Muslim in bringing back the Islamic Messiah by creating a catastrophe throughout the world where they can hasten or usher in his return. When people ask me if I believe we're living in the last days, my answer is yes. Why? Because Jesus and the apostles and the prophets laid out a whole series of things to watch for that would be signs that we're living in the last days. Wars, rumors of wars, the rise of false prophets, false religions, false messiahs, persecution of the believers, earthquakes, natural disasters, uh, famines, uh, you know, rise of lawlessness, crime, and you can pretty much go through that list and go check, 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 check. The Bible is clear that uh, there will be many attempts at the end of history to destroy Israel and the Jewish people. Uh, they will all be defeated but not without great suffering. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, you know, I am praying for the peace of Jerusalem, but I'm also preparing for the certainty of major wars happening in the Middle East in the not too distant future. And that means providing food and clothing and medical supplies, uh, storehousing this stuff, getting ready that Christians would help stand with Israel and our neighbors ahead of whatever major wars are coming next. My parents were Holocaust survivors. When people would ask them, where was God during the Holocaust, they would say, as many have said, where were human beings during the Holocaust? Uh, we'd like to think that when people are committed to decency, uh, decency triumphs. Jewish tradition does teach us that there will be a conflict between good and evil, Gog, Magog. Uh, you find that in Ezekiel. You find uh, allusions to it in the book of Daniel, uh, and ultimately, uh, good will triumph, and the Messiah will arrive, and we'll see a transformation uh, in the world as we know it. But again, the word mitzvah is very important in our tradition because it says, I have responsibilities to you, to others, on this day. Uh, so while it's important to have you know, a view of the next world, uh, that does not relieve us of our responsibility to do in this world. We cannot live with a nuclear end. That has been echoed by many people of all different political uh, backgrounds, all different religious backgrounds. Now what does that mean? If we can't live with them, then uh, we have to do something to make sure that uh, they don't live with us. In the time we've been working on this documentary, Iran, with Russia's help, has put a nuclear power plant online, introduced a drone bomber capable of delivering a ballistic missile payload, announced advances in its long-range ballistic missile program, and continued to march unabated towards nuclear weapons capability.
by the time you watch this. Hopefully, it won't be too late.